I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, and today I am joined by my friend Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello. Welcome. Hey, Abby. So nice to see you again. Thank you. Yeah, seeing me in my uh, official Strong Towns sweatshirt that I'm very excited that you sent. So thank you very much. Now we're just sending uh, packages back and forth to each other, which is beautiful. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I very, I very much appreciate it. It's very comfortable. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll just start wearing it around all the time and promoting strong towns. <laughs> well, you are definitely doing what you can. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. So we have a really fun article that we're going to talk about today. That is an op-ed from the New York Times written by Ezra Klein. This is entitled, The Story Construction Tells About America's Economy is Disturbing. So the author basically makes the case that we are getting worse at construction. Today, we seem to have a lot of advantages. We have global shipping, prefab materials, teleconferencing, advanced machinery, computer modeling, all these things that go into building a building. And you would think that this would make the industry much more efficient. That is, we would be building a lot faster with less money than we did in the past. However, the author cites that back in 1970, there was a point where the construction productivity in the U.S. began to fall, even as economy-wide productivity was rising. So, Basically, he, you know, he cites a bunch of research that concludes that this is not because of underinvestment in the industry or some kind of statistical illusion. Um, It's not necessarily based on uh, regulatory burden issues comparing red versus blue states or urban versus rural contexts. Instead, he he kind of talks about this being a misdirection of our own affluence is the way that I would put it. He cites this 1982 book by economist Mankur Olson called The Rise and Decline of Nations, which develops this theory for why nations stagnate amongst affluence and then thrive in the aftermath of chaos. And the theory makes the case that the more organized your society comes, the more complicated it becomes. The more fights you have over distribution, the more lobbying, the more complicated the regulations, uh, more in-group uh, fighting and bargaining and negotiation. So this, in summary, special interest organizations and collusions that develop in an affluent society basically reduce efficiency and aggregate income and also make political life more divisive. And the construction industry may well be the industry that has the most exposure to this thesis. So, you know, really interesting article. I personally really liked the historical perspective talking about how different countries either grew or stagnated after World War II and this idea that affluence doesn't necessarily mean that your economy is going to grow. Is this something that you 
you know, resonated with Chuck. I know you're kind of our resident historian <laughs> at Strong Towns. And Are so, you saying but, I'm, I'm old, Abby? <laughs> no, not old, but I definitely uh, think that the, the historical perspective would have been something of, that's of interest to you, especially talking about World War II. It, I mean, is this, do you think this is a valid, I guess, thesis for this author to be going off of? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you use the word complicated and Ezra Klein used the word complex. And That's funny you noticed that because I intentionally said complicated and not complex. Okay. Why? Why did you say complicated? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm not putting you on the spot, but... Yes. Well, I mean, there's a difference between complexity and and things that are complicated and Complexity basically means that it's a system that adapts and can be resilient. And if something is complicated, it operates more like a machine where if you take a cog out of a clock, it's not going to adapt and change the way it functions. It just won't function anymore. It'll cease right. to function. I feel like that is, I feel like that's what Ezra Klein when he uses those words, he uses it wrong. Like he call, he says the, yeah. the, it becomes more complex and it actually does it. It becomes less complex um, yes. over time. I think, and he's using the words interchangeably, if I yes. remember correctly. Yes. Because he, he cites that the book from 1982 about economies failing. And, and one of the insights he had there was at the end of World War II, you would have thought that Germany and Japan would have been in for a really like long period of decline and depression and difficulty because they they had had everything destroyed. I mean, they had destroyed their cities and destroyed, and that the countries that were victorious, you know, England, France, Russia, would have had this prosperity then because now the war is over and you've been victorious and and it, in fact it was the exact opposite. And the reality is that those early days of Japan post-World War II and the early days of Germany post-World War II were periods of time where a complex system emerged and started to you know, organically grow from, from the pieces left over after World War II. You wouldn't wish this on anyone. You wouldn't say, you know, the, the, the great, you know, let's raise a country, let's burn this field down so that things grow back beautifully. But what happens in the absence of that complicating kind of thing that that bogs things down is you do get this natural flourishment. So immediately after World War II, Germany and Japan uh, for, for decades were the most aggressively growing places and really places to admire in terms of what they were able to produce. When you look at Western economies, it was the opposite, right? We had immediately after World War II imposed kind of this new development pattern on things, experienced here in North America an immense amount of growth over a short period of time. And now, and they point to the early 1970s, there's a, a whole bunch of people that point to the early 1970s as like this period of time where everything started to break down. It is essentially the second generation of the suburban expansion of the new American development paradigm. And yeah, you see the complex replaced by the merely complicated. You see systems that become calcified and layers of, we could just say bureaucracy or red tape, but what it is is reaction, counter-reaction, reaction, counter-reaction counter piled on top. And 
I think the notion that affluence is the cause has some basis to it, but I think what affluence is, is it's actually the thing that enables you to continue to not have to deal with the problem, right? I am 49. I'm a generation, I'm ahead of you. For a long period of time in the 80s and the 90s, the political discussion we had in this country was about throwing money at our problems, you know, and that was looked at as like a bad thing. We have these underlying problems and we're just throwing money at them. That's the layering on of complication on top of the system. Since really the housing crisis, but maybe even before that, we stopped using that term to describe what we were doing. That's really like an, an older term. Today, we like throwing money at it is just like that. We don't even look at it in those terms. It's just like, this is what is needed for us to continue on. If we didn't have that option, systems would break, they would be destroyed, and you would see more emergent things come through. Not necessarily better, but you would get some of that complexity back. And I, I, I think this notion that the number of people per house built, it was an astounding statistic, right? Has been growing and growing and growing. That would all go away. I think the question is, would we be better off, right? So, yeah, I, th I think that is the question because while efficiency is certainly a challenge in our society and it should be a priority, I don't think, I, I think it should be stated. And I wouldn't say that this is Ezra's assertion, but it should be stated that efficiency isn't like the end all be all. It's not the most or only important, you know, value in how we construct our society and buildings and construction within our society. There's a reason why we, you know, want to have some life safety parameters and things of that nature. But I would say that, you know, if you think of everything that just goes into building a building, uh, say you're going to, you know, construct a four story building, there's a lot of risk that goes into that. And a lot of that is because of litigation as well as, you know, well, probably regulations that came from litigation or regulations that come from zoning and community and that sort of thing. There's a lot of influences on how that building needs to be constructed and put together in order to occupy it. You know, that's going to drive specialization where you need to have somebody who really understands building codes or ADA and somebody who really understands uh, mechanics or plumbing. There's a lot of specialization that comes into a building that we didn't have in the past, whereas, you know, 200 years ago, I have this impression that 200 years ago, probably most men, but maybe even a lot of women were a lot more of a jack of all trades. People kind of had more influence, I think, hands-on influence and things that got built around them. Was it safer from a <laughs> building code perspective? Maybe, maybe not. Um, it probably depends. But there's a lot of specialization that I think drives up the inefficiencies that are needed. And I don't know how you unwind that because it does seem like it is this big, complicated system. We have all of, we have basically a completely different building environment than we did 100 years ago. The industry is now so different. And I don't know that any of these um it's more about how we've arranged ourselves as people rather than the technology that we're utilizing, if that makes sense. No, it does. It, it totally makes sense. 
you, you've prompted like many things in my brain as you were saying this. I feel like instead of the the rise and decline of nations being like the prism you look at this through, I, I do think that the Strauss Howe like fourth turning is maybe a better way to think about this. And I'm gonna, you know, trigger warning. There's a lot of uh, people who look at the fourth turning, the book, the concept, almost in the way like we think stereotypically of like uh, fanatics looking at, you know, like religious fanatics looking at thing. Like if we just bring about the apocalypse from that ashes will rise greatness. I, I don't look at the fourth turning that way. Like, and so I think there's a lot to be taken out of it if you ignore the fanatics who are like, maybe if we create chaos. So the idea of the fourth turning is that you would have different generations that raise the next generation in a, in a way of kind of responding to its time. So you would have a period of time where things are working really, really well. And that generation would raise the next generation um, in a way where that they would kind of become awake to the problems with the system and start to kind of, you know, itch for reform or push for reform. And then the next generation would kind of see the system calcify a little bit and struggle with integrating those reforms and try to make it happen. And then by the time you get to the next generation, the vision that the very first people had and put in place falls apart and is no longer viable and kind of crumbles. And then you recreate something from scratch and start the system over again. I think if we look at like the end of World War II, uh, that generation had gone through the Depression and World War II. They, they had gone through essentially the crisis period. And they created like a new version of America. We're going to have suburbs. We're going to build very quickly. We're going to stay out of depression by having economics that are very top down and focused on growth. Um, we're going to build highways. We're going to build infrastructure. We're going to do all this stuff. By the time you get to the end of the 1960s, the next generation is starting to be sensitive to the fact that this isn't working, right? Like when we destroy neighborhoods, we're not actually helping people. We're creating lots of environmental damage. We're creating lot, And you see over the 70s and the 80s and, and, and partially through the 90s, this attempt to kind of patch all that together. Let's have environmental laws. Let's have environmental reviews. Let's um, have limits on debt and on borrowing. And let, let's try to like respond to these things. Let, let's create a new financial system so we can have you know, advanced secondary markets. And they try to patch the system together. In the third generation, institutions like start to fail, like start to, this isn't working. I've lost faith in the federal government. I've lost faith in the state to do this. I've lost faith in the DOT. And it becomes like across the board, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking of this from like a suburban experiment, but you can go back and look at this happening throughout history. And that generation influences the next one as they're raising them to be sensitive to these things. And the next one lives through the crisis where things fall apart. But they also then say, all right, this is a great opportunity now to reestablish a new thing, like a new way of doing stuff. And the cycle starts over. Um, I feel like the construction thing is a really, if you look in this country, higher education, medicine, medical profession, housing construction, these have largely been the places that have been protected from market forces. Every time that housing has gone into uh, stagnation, prices have slowed, we've run in with more programs, more funding, more you know, things to prop it up. 
and keep it going. Let's lower interest rates. Let's, uh, you know, help first time home buyers, da, 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 da. We got to keep housing prices up. When you look at like the education, like higher education in specific, you know, you've seen this, it's kind of famously documented the growth in the administration, the growth in all these ancillary things that go around like learning, right? The, the teacher student ratio is the same, but the administration student ratio is gone bizarre. Like it's gone way out of whack. The medical profession has the same thing. There's more people actually processing medical paperwork than there is seeing patients. And we look at this and we're like, why is this happening? What's going on? And our response is to kind of layer on top of it more paperwork, more routine, more requirements, more of this to try to wrestle it. But what you're actually seeing is the system that has been protected from the, the painful feedback uh, kind of metastasize, almost like a, like a tumor, right? The way that is fixed is by having it break. And you know, maybe someone can give us an example of a system that's gone this way where it hasn't been kind of reconstructed or deconstructed or broken and it's fixed itself, but I'm, I'm not aware of one. And I think that should give us all in construction like a little bit of a pause, right? Yeah, especially when there's probably a subset of society that doesn't consider an efficiency in the construction industry to be broken, right? You have... Um, you know, a perspective that is out there that, you know, it's good for the real estate industry to be unproductive because, you know, I don't want somebody building in my community or developers are greedy and evil and we shouldn't empower them. Um, but my initial reaction to this framing is that it actually empowers bigger and more corporate developers and builders because it creates this level of risk that increases the barrier to entry. So when that happens, you don't have small-scale developers, people locally in your community that can actually contribute directly to the built environment and invest in the built environment because they're going to be at a significant disadvantage when the construction environment is very complicated. So, you know, you won't have an industry, a local industry of, you know, a thousand would-be small-scale developers and people who can contribute to that kind of ecosystem, you're instead going to get, you know, larger developers that will, there's still going to be demand because you're going to have scarcity and they will, you know, react to the demand that's out there by doing larger development projects. And also they they probably have more connections politically and more financial resources to navigate more complicated systems. So they're going to benefit from the scarcity and address demand in other ways. So I think that's something that often gets missed, you know, when, when, you know, people don't necessarily, maybe some people don't see that as an issue and just think that's, that's the cost of doing business. That's the cost of, you know, having, checks and balances on developers and, you know, protecting our communities. That's not to say that that's not important, but I think that we're kind of missing out on something that would be more beneficial for communities by making things so complicated. I want to bolster what you said by pointing out one aspect of this too, that I think is like extra pernicious. By making building a very like corporate centric, top down, large player dominated industry, what happens is that there becomes a 
and I'm not going to rise say this rises to the level of collusion, but there is a certain you know soft collusion that goes on where everybody recognizes that shortage shortfalls benefit everybody by having not enough supply in the market. What you kind of guarantee is that the investments that you do have in play uh, are going to hold their value and rise in value. And if you are an inefficient developer, if you are an incompetent developer, if you are a bad home builder, um, rising prices bails you out over and over and over. And someone really good can make good money, right, when, when rising prices increases their margins. But the reality is, is that the industry, and I'm going to say this, and I know we're going to have some people get mad at me, um, okay, the industry is rife with really lazy, bad players because the market has bailed them out by not having any real correction in housing prices. Oh my gosh, Chuck, we had corrections. We went through Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we have not. Because there's not been any like major home builders that have gone out of business. There's not been any major players that have been wiped out and they should have been time and time and time again. They are in a sense like protected because we have this market that we have itself protected and propped up. And that has allowed these deep inefficiencies to rise up within that as long as we see in this kind of top down way, they're, they're not going to work themselves out. Well, and ultimately, just to go down this path, we do, we broadly pay for construction at the end of the day. So, you know, that often doesn't get brought up either that, you know, if we're going to have a lot of inefficiency in the construction industry. It's not, you know, the developers that are, necess- you know, they're paying for the building to be constructed and that's getting more expensive every day. Um but the more complicated and risky it takes to actually build something, especially through the process of building it, that is going to make make it so that there's more money that actually gets spent on that process of building the building. And if that increases the cost of a building by, let's say, 15 or 20%, the users of the building are the ones that are ultimately paying for that at the end of the day. That means that housing prices are more expensive, office space is more expensive, retail space is more expensive. Um, you know, it squeezes the user and, and you know, all the while supply is being stifled. So that is just not a good thing. And it's not to say that people in their community shouldn't have any say over the built environment. But when a project is being proposed, that's like exactly the wrong time for people to be, you know, contributing to what should be in the community if the building can be built by right, if it's following all the standards and ideally planning processes and kind of the process of understanding these things generally would be kind of having a pre-established framework that is efficient and has some level of consensus behind it. And now it's, to me, it seems like it's really the opposite where, you know, you have this process of building a building and there's all these different things together bogging it down cumulatively. Um, And that's not just, you know, zoning regulations or community participation or whatever. Um, It's also attorneys. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. So it feels like as an industry, we really need to like step back and look locally at all the things that are contributing to this and like clean it up, not even just zoning reform, but like reform of many different facets of the built environment. No doubt. Can can I give what I think is 
the quintessential example, but but also one that will make everybody squirm a little bit. Sounds great. <laughs> okay, particularly in the wake of you know this horrible tragedy that has happened in Turkey and Syria, where you have this earthquake and, and tens of thousands of people are dead, and people are pointing the fingers at like bad building practices and, and regulations. The building code in this country that is used is horrible. It, it is one of the biggest impediments to doing things that are productive. And, you know, if I'm the politician running for office saying we need building code reform, we need to repeal these regulations, uh, people are going to freak out and they're going to point to Turkey and be like, you, do you want to be like that? But you and I have both experienced, and I think probably most people listening to this have experienced, instances where perfectly good buildings uh, had to be torn down or were torn down uh, because the the architect, the contractor, the owner, whoever looked at it and said, it is going to be more expensive to make this building usable than it is to just start over. And that's a building code issue. So let me give a, an example of how I think a fourth turning, tear down, reconstruct, do this differently kind of thing would happen. I've written about this before. The idea that we would have two levels of building inspection for existing buildings. So you have an existing building, you want to change the use or make use of it. You want to do something different. Um, you have a building that maybe has not been, it's been not used and now you're going to go up and reclaim it. Today, we would send the building inspector out and say, here's all the things that you have to do before you can open the door. Here's a list of you know half a million dollars worth of things that must be done. What I would say is we recognize, A, that that building has been there a long time. So the likelihood of it falling down, uh, creating problems like right off the bat are, are very minimal, right? What I would do is I would send the building inspector out and have them go through the building and make a determination of, is this building safe in, this, in the broader sense that is the roof going to collapse? Are the walls going to fall down? Do we have some like massive problem here that's like a, a big red flag? Not... The, the the outlets are supposed to be 18 inches apart and they're 24 inches. Like none of that stuff. Just like, is this building like a pending disaster? And, and the example I use is like, are there straw bales littered across the floor with gasoline dripping on them and like electric arcing over top of them? No. Okay. Then I would go in and issue them a preliminary or a, a temporary permit. Go ahead and open up your building. But you have to put this like seal and emblem on the door that says this place has not passed the ultimate building inspection. It is a provisionary license. Go in and do it. And give that business, give that new place like six months to get up and running. Figure out if you got a business that works, figure out if you can cash flow it, figure out if you can make it work. After six months, then go in and say, all right, you're still here. Congratulations. Most businesses fail within six months. I'm glad you figured it out and you made it. Now we're going to go through and inspect your entire building and come up with a punch list of all the things that need to be done to bring this up to code. And what we're going to do is have you pay 2%, 3% of your revenue every month into a fund. That fund will be kept over here. And then when you get enough money in that fund to do the first thing that needs to be done, We'll take that money and, and you can go do the first thing and, and take the money out of the fund and do it. And so basically we use the success of your business to fix the building instead of making fixing the building the prerequisite for starting a business. 
In the first, we can be very bottom up and we can get to the destination we want to get to in a way that is relatively safe, but does have maybe a little bit more risk to the system. In option number two, which is our current system, we have broad stagnation and decline. And only when you can deliver the fully finished product 100% right to the billing code, do you get to do anything. I'm going to tell you this, and it's a dirty secret, and I won't point any fingers at any specific place on this podcast, but there are lots of cities in deep distress that essentially do that with their building code. Because they need they, they need the investment. And if you're going to go out there and be a, an Orwellian top-down, like this must be this way before you can do anything, those cities will like never have anything done. And so pragmatically, they work around it. And this is exactly what we see in the fourth turning is that the systems start to not work and then they start to be ignored and then new systems emerge that actually are able to deal with the, the new problem, not the problem of a generation ago. The problem of, of uh, not generation, the problem of the end of World War II was that we had lots of housing that was really crappy. Now we have not enough housing, but it's all kind of decent quality. We've gone like too far and now we need to solve this problem. And that's going to mean going back a little bit the other way. There's so much I want to say about that, but I know we probably need to wrap this up um, so you can get to your next your next <laughs> thing. But that made me actually think about the approach that we took for the zoning on a, I don't know if I have mentioned this before, but I'm working on the redevelopment of a of an old school with Monty Anderson, who's a developer out mm-hmm. of Texas, and then a local I'm land aware, trust yeah. that owned the building. And we use this, you know, PUD process, which is kind of like where you negotiate the zoning parameters. And that was something that we really needed to negotiate from a site improvement perspective, like to what extent are we repaving parking lots and, you know, making it a essentially a brand new site. And we were able to negotiate it basically to the point that we could kind of use what we have on the site and, you know, power wash, clean, restripe rather than reconstructing things. So I think that that approach kind of applies to both, you know, site improvements and site, you know, zoning and things of that nature, how much you're, you know, changing the facade on your building, for example, because there are so many standards that take these buildings and areas that are kind of stagnating, had been declining for a long time, and the market is not there to make the investments that are needed for it to pass all of the different tests, not just building code, but zoning as well. And, you know, subdivision standards, basically all of the regulations require that things need to be market rate. It needs to be like a hot market for anything to get done unless you get some significant amount of subsidy to cover it, which we're not using on this project. So it's it's been a learning learning curve and we're now under construction so i'm looking forward to learning more about building code yeah yeah so, yeah we'll see how it goes <laughs> that's a great example well and and monty is like he is almost a i mean not almost he is a hero of mine he 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 is heroic <laughs> in the sense that he has devoted a lot of his life to hacking these things and figuring out how to make them work in spite of there being like easier paths in the world, right? 
I love that you say he's a hero because I was on the phone the other day with Bernice Radel, who's a developer yeah. out of Buffalo, a young lady. I know Bernice very well. Yeah. And we were both saying he's our hero. And oh, I, yeah. I think one of us said he was a saint. And I was like, you know what he's like? He's like a small developer monk. Like he has that yeah. vibe about him. So yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not, he is not a small developer uh, like profit. Like he's not, you know, yeah, he is more like a small developer monk where he is going around doing hard work in, in like, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, he's, he's the Buddha. We'll call him bro- <laughs> Brother Monty. Mon- Monty. Yeah, Brother totally. Monty. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So before we get done today, it is time for the down zone part of the show where we can share anything we've been up to these days. Uh, Chuck, I'm just going to throw it right to you. Well, I, I'm going to throw it back to you because I think you need to predict who's going to win the football game. We're recording this on Friday before the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, I think you're predicting Kansas City, right? Yeah. 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 Chiefs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've already blocked off Wednesday. It's it's the Chiefs. Okay. All right. Wednesday would be our parade. I guess I Is should that your parade provide day? some context. Okay. It so you're, you're already, yeah. you've already got the chairs out and you've reserved your spot on the street and you know, like, we're ready to go. The parade. Yeah. The champagne's in on proper ice. Missouri fashion. Uh-huh. I've got my foldable <laughs> chairs out on the side uh-huh. of the road okay. with a Good. barbecue grill next yeah. to it and some bags to toss. Yeah. So yeah, we, I'm we, set up. We have, one of our team members is from Philadelphia and um, she's, she's a wonderful person and I really admire her a lot. I have always had a deep dislike for, uh, Philadelphia sports. And I really don't know why. I don't think it has anything to do with like the teams. I think it has way more to do with the fans. The same with everything New York. Like for some reason, those two markets have always driven me nuts. We don't play Philadelphia in my favorite sport, baseball. Although we will start now more this year because they've changed the way they're doing scheduling. Um, But we play New York obviously all the time. And for some reason, I just have a loathing for those fans. So my apologies to all Philadelphia Eagles lovers, but I am also cheering for Kansas City this weekend. So we'll see. Yay. Yeah, I didn't wear Um, red today, which I think is um, kind of a faux pas. But I just got into football like last week when we decided we were going to the Super Bowl. So, well, you know, better better late than never. (laughs) Better Um, late than never. Yep. So, I, I, uh, there's a, a guy named Jim Rickards who's really, uh, interesting slash annoying sometimes. He's one of these guys where when you get him on a podcast and ask him one question, he will talk for an hour without a second question. So he, you, you, he's an acquired taste, but he's also like deeply insightful on finances in a practical kind of way. And he tends to come out with a new book every other year, roughly. And I've listened to uh, or read like the last like six, he, he had one that came out uh, called Sold Out. And it is essentially looking at the economy post-pandemic, during the pandemic and then post-pandemic and the inflation and causes and all this. And it was just a very interesting, and it won't be one of my books of the year, but I think if you're someone who wants like a, not a crazy perspective, because I wouldn't call him that either, but a non-industry standard that yet speaks like industry lingo. Uh, his explanation about what's gone on, I think is is worth listening to and worth pondering. So I finished that uh, last week and I thought it was really good and, and worth sharing here. 
Excellent. Well, I guess the next time we talk, we'll know if the Chiefs won the Super Bowl and um, I'll either be bummed out or really ecstatic. So we'll see. <laughs> well, you said you just became a fan, so you won't be that bummed out. I mean, no, there will I'll be get people... over it pretty quickly. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, there I, will be people I think in the vibe of the city will be more right. sad. Yeah, but maybe this is unfair. But I don't think that there will be like cars burned and like, you know, Molotov cocktails thrown and stuff in Kansas City. If we, if lose. we lose. Yeah. No. 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 Maybe if we win. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we will see my experience with philadelphia is that win or lose those things will happen so we'll see maybe not maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised and i'm gonna hold out hope i have a lot of friends in in philadelphia who are beautiful people and i've been there a number of times and i like lots of philadelphia like there's some great neighborhoods um but for some reason the, the 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 sports rooting gets a little a little not let's say not midwestern right yeah the yeah. the sports culture in Kansas City is pretty awesome, to be honest. Yeah. I'm not really a big sports person, but the culture around it is, I think, really fun and like good hearted. People aren't really like, I don't know. It's not like a bar fight vibe. Right. My last trip to Kansas City, we did World War One Museum. I think the next trip to Kansas City will be the zoo, I think we decided. And also yes. um a Royals game, right? Like I think we yes, should Yes, let's do that. that. Yeah. Yeah, let's make that happen. Um, especially the zoo. We have a new baby rhino. And I know you do. I'm excited about I've it. I've been following it on Instagram and I want to see it. And I also really want to see the hippos. So <laughs> see, here's the thing. You just became a Kansas animals. City football fan, even though you've had one of the greatest teams over the last like four or five years. You've just like now, but you follow the Instagram hippo, which I really, I like that about you, Abby. Yeah, I do follow. (laughs) Yeah, I do follow that. I follow the Chiefs too, but I just don't, it's a slow game. It's not like soccer where they're moving the whole time. I just don't know that I have the attention span to to sit and and watch a bunch of games. I'll watch the Super Bowl and get really competitive about it. All right. But well, I don't know that I have it in me to watch an entire season of football, much less other teams. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, go so. Chiefs. You have one of yeah, the most exciting Chiefs. players in the in the business. Patrick Mahomes, his father, Patrick Mahomes, uh, was a pitcher for the Minnesota Twins for many years. So Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. So yes, you've got right. a connection. I do. I have a deep connection, yes. <laughs> I do have a Patrick Mahomes <laughs> autograph. Um, what? Yeah, but not him, his dad. <laughs> like oh, I got, oh yeah. duh. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's actually pretty cool. Okay. It is pretty cool. Thanks, Abby. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go, Chuck. I will see you next week. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Let me show you what I'm about to do.